the Sage of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book six, The Summer of Wood and Iron. Chapter three, Deal at the Border. It was a pleasant summer afternoon for a drive down to Atkinson, one of the many small towns along the New Hampshire and Massachusetts border. Martin knelt amid the wood chips in the back of Charles's flatbed, occasionally pouring a scoop of chips into the top of the gasifier rigged into the front corner. Charles is probably going crazy being in the cab alone, mumbled Martin. Martin muttered to himself, a peculiar habit he had been developing. He usually has Tyler with him in there to talk to. I don't know which one of them looked more disappointed when Walter said they shouldn't both go. Uh, he was probably right, though. Varney freaked out at the sight of Susan and me. No doubt three strange men at his gate would seem like a, a hostile gang. Charles kept the truck speed down, mostly to burn fewer wood chips, but also because people and animals were often standing in the road. With virtually no more vehicular traffic, roads had become just another patch of ground, albeit very hard ground. As the flatbed trundled over the gentle hills or rounded the wide curves, Martin could see much activity going on at the occupied houses along the road. The hardship of that first winter without power seemed like they had happened years ago, not six months ago. Many had died, the medically frail, the crime victims, and those too isolated to benefit from community. The young and the strong had the fortitude to survive. Many of the state's elderly were smart enough and stubborn enough to survive. When the snows melted, the survivors, young and old, set about building a new life. What used to be wide lawns had been plowed. Instead of stylishly diagonal-mowed stripes, there stood rows of corn or wheat. Men and women in broad-brimmed hats toiled in their yard fields, weeding or digging with forked cultivators. Children, deeply tanned by the summer sun, tried to herd small groups of geese or ducks back to their homes. Teen boys, who usually looked sullen and disgruntled, even when they had nothing to do, looked understandably disgruntled while they split firewood. Several small children, kicking around a ball, stopped to wave as Charles's truck rumbled past them. Atop one gentle hill, the road passed close to an old barn, itself a remnant of the area's 19th-century farming history. In the field behind the huge barn, a man sat on a hay mower, pulled by two slender brown horses. In an adjacent field, several young men tossed pitchfork loads of pale green hay onto a broad, flat trailer, equipped with chain-link fencing as its sides. The automotive wheels on the trailer sported mismatched hubcaps. Martin smiled. The collapse had not suppressed a young man's urge to dress up his wheels, even when it was only a hay wagon. At one intersection, the lone commercial building, a derelict gas station, had become an ad hoc farmer's market, with several stalls constructed out of old pallets, clustered in the shade of the gas station's wide canopy. Life in most of New Hampshire's small towns seemed to have stabilized into a sort of quiet 19th and 20th century rural hybrid. Federally sponsored mischief had dwindled. The ranks of the criminally minded, those who figured to steal from others instead of work, 
had dwindled to almost nothing through attrition. There were far more residents willing to defend their supplies than there were pirates intent to take them. The odds were stacked against the pirates. It only took one botched raid to end a pirate's career. Even the urban gangs ran out of troublemaking supplies, like fuel and ammunition. They also ran out of easy targets. The hard targets thinned the gang's ranks. Folks were adapting to the new normal and worked hard to ensure that the coming winter would not be as hard as the last. As they crossed the border of Atkinson, Martin noticed a change in the landscape. The broad open spaces weren't planted with crops. They were left fallow, becoming wildflower meadows. What gardens he did see were small and close to the houses. The houses themselves looked different, too. Many had plywood over their windows, especially first-floor windows. The wooden coverings often had narrow slits near their center. Even the upper-story windows had stripes of boards across them. One house had a waist-high wall of sandbags around its front door. Another had an earthen berm, perhaps three feet tall, around the front and side. Weeds had grown up on the fresh soil. But those were clipped short along the top. Martin saw virtually no one outdoors. The one dour-looking man he did see didn't return Martin's wave, but simply stared as they passed. Life looks harder here. Martin said to himself. As the rural hybrid lifestyle farther from the border had become the new normal, it was easy to forget the ongoing tension along the border. The Fed loyalists in Massachusetts had scaled back their assaults and intrusions over the winter, probably due to a lack of resources more than faltering will. But from the look of the land and the houses, it was obvious that the loyalists persisted in a sort of drip, drip, drip campaign of harassment. First, Martin saw one burned-out house, then another. Pairs of chimneys stood amid low scrub and tall weeds. Rusted shells of burned-out cars sat in weedy driveways. The air still carried traces of the smell of smoke. There were no gardens. Occasionally, crude wooden crosses stood in overgrown front yards. There were no gaunt figures to stare back at them as they passed. Charles must have noticed the desolation and slowed the truck to a walking pace. Perhaps he worried about trouble jumping out suddenly. Martin pulled his carbine close and forced himself to scan left, right, and behind them as they rolled slowly down Route 121. He was about to comment about life being even harder close to the border, but he wasn't sure there was actually any life there. Charles banged on the cab's rear window to get Martin's attention. He pointed ahead. Martin peered over the top of the cab to see a series of Jersey barriers strung across the highway. There was a zig and a zag to them, such that a vehicle might pass by making a three-point turn and backing out. Concrete blocks littered the entrance to the maze. I think we found Mr. Varney's front door, Martin called down to Charles. After sitting, idling for ten minutes, with no apparent activity around the roadblock, Charles asked, uh, Is there a doorbell or something? Well, how should I know? This is all new to me. Uh, try a couple of short beeps of the horn. Uh, try to make them friendly beeps. 
Charles shook his head and muttered, <laughs> Friendly beeps. A minute later, Martin noticed a shadow move through the trees. A steel plate was wedged between two of the Jersey barriers, sat atop a lower row of barriers. A small horizontal slot opened up in the steel plate. The barrel of a 12-gauge thrust out of the slot. A face was occasionally visible behind the shotgun. Who are you and what do you want? demanded the voice. Um, hello, uh, Mr. Varney? Martin tried a friendly wave, although the muzzle of a 12-gauge took a lot of the friendly out of it. Uh, hi, again. I'm Martin, uh, Martin Simmons. I, uh, we came up through your woods a few days after the power failed. Uh, remember? You thought we were messing with your rabbits? Martin held a smile that he hoped looked sincere and non-threatening. Ah, you just sit right there, said Mr. Varney. I got a sniper trained on you, so don't try any funny stuff. The twelve-gauge pulled in, and the little slot in the steel closed from behind. He's got a sniper? Charles asked softly, without moving his lips. I doubt it, said Martin, also in ventriloquist style. But let's pretend like he does. He's probably got cameras anyhow. Two dark shapes moved through the thick pines. A head with short gray hair peeked over the steel plate. Martin? Ah, don't stick your head up like that, admonished the unseen Mr. Varney. Talk through the slot. I told you a hundred times. Do you want to? Okay, okay. So open the stupid slot, snipped his wife. The little door opened, and two bright gray eyes peered through the slot. Martin Simmons? Ah, you're supposed to ask him his name, not tell him scolded Mr. Varney. All he's got to do is say yes. Ah, that don't prove nothing. Too late now. Uh, ask him some uh, insider info question. Oh, uh, okay. Um, uh, what was the screensaver on your laptop? She asked. A picture of the Rocky Mountains. See, I told you it was him, she muttered over her shoulder. You and your spy password shenanigans. Well, what are you doing here? demanded Mr. Varney. Uh, we've come down for a meet-up across the border, here to trade some corn for some engine parts. Uh, you've heard about it, uh, right? asked Martin. After a big huffing sound, Mr. Varney said, oh, I'll pull into the middle of the switchback. I'll open the barricade. Back down the driveway. The little door closed the slot. Hot dog, whispered Charles. Yeah, looks like we're in. Told you having you along as an ID would work. No, you didn't, scolded Martin. You only hoped. A scraping sound of concrete on concrete caught his ear. Oh, uh, better get into the maze. Don't want to keep our reluctant host waiting. Charles backed the old flatbed down the crumbling pavement, careful not to stray off the center line. Pine branches, eager for daylight, had grown into the already narrow driveway. Stop there! shouted Mr. Varney. He approached the driver's side with his shotgun draped over his forearm. The drop it and until tomorrow morning. You'll have to hide this thing. If they see it, they'll bomb it. Park it under there. He pointed with a nod of his head. Charles complied, backing the battered Ford over blackened grass, coming to a stop beneath a gable-ended roof structure held up by eight posts. Martin closed off the gasifier's air. The fire would die down in several minutes. As much as he disliked cold starts, he didn't like to waste wood chips, 
they were a fair amount of work to make. Glancing at the underside of the roof, he could see that it was built with minimal framing. The plywood sheathing spanned three or four feet between rafters. Some of the plywood sheets were blackened at their edges. Ropes acted like collar ties and cross-bracing. The whole thing looked like boyish treehouse construction, but on a grand scale. It didn't look like it would stand up to a winter's snow load, and perhaps not even a strong wind. Uh, what's this structure? asked Martin. I, I mean, if you don't mind my asking. Mr. Varney squinted at him for a long moment. Oh, just tell him, chided Pat. It's Martin. They know all about the drop site. They can't be part of them. And you just had them parked right under it, so it's not like they won't know it's here. Mr. Varney grumbled something before saying, Okay, fine. It's my fake house. Same size and shape as my real house, but off to one side. Uh, last winter, the feds took to harassing me on account of my helping with the refugees and all. They were sending these little napalm gliders at night, trying to burn me out. Martin nodded. Yeah, we know about those gliders. We had a few directed at us, too. Ah, their homemade napalm ain't like the real stuff. It's either been too sticky, so it don't burn good, or it burns too good and it's too runny. Still, I got tired of putting out fires and hosing down my roof. So, I built this fake house where their cameras could see it, and it was close enough to GPS coordinates to seem legit. I replace the parts of my fake house when they get too burnt, camouflage my real house over there with paint and camo knitting, and what amounts to two big fake pine trees. He pointed back at his house. The once blue siding had been painted in random width vertical stripes of grays, overlaid with wide sponge dabs of olive and sage greens. Over the roof, sticks and poles held camouflage netting at irregular peaks and valleys. Up against the south-facing eaves stood two dead pine tree trunks, secured with cable stays. Across their otherwise bare branches was more netting, draped in horizontal spirals. It's easier to deal with the fires on the fake roof, added Pat with a nod. Mr. Varney resumed. Of course, you know you'll be parked right under here at your own risk. If they attack tonight, ah, no guarantees on nothing. Um, it's getting to be evening soon, said Charles. Uh, where do you figure we can sleep? Well, you ain't coming in the house, that's for sure, said Mr. Varney. Nobody comes in the house. They understand that, said his wife. She patted him on the arm. He pulled his arm away quickly, as if embarrassed at being gently consoled in the midst of his tough guy persona. Now you can pitch a camp out there in the yard, or under the fake roof, but nowhere else. Understand? And it'll be a cold camp, too. No fires. The drones are looking for heat. I'll get you a couple of big mylar blankets to cover your tents so they can't see you glowing like two little fireflies in a jar. He turned and strode toward his back door. Pat quickly smiled. Oh, it's so nice to see you again, Martin. I gather you made it home, okay? Martin nodded. And how is that lovely wife of yours? She asked. Charles turned to give Martin a puzzled look. Uh, she's fine, Martin said, mincing his words. His wife, Margaret, was fine, after all. He assumed that Susan, whom he knew Pat meant, was also fine. A change of topic was needed before names came out. So how have you guys been getting along down here? 
from the burned-out houses and the graves in the yards. It, it looks like life on the border has been really tough. Oh, sure, at first. It was just crazy, said Pat. People streaming over the border, wandering up the road. Everyone wanted help. Oh, but you know Linwood. He's not particularly generous. After the refugees, it started to be the unsavory characters crossing at night. They'd try to break in and steal stuff. They did that to most of the houses along here. Linwood didn't like them at all. She motioned with the tip of her head toward a long pile of turned earth. Weeds had begun to grow up amid the clods. I've lost count of how many of them he put in there. Um, how long did that go on? Martin asked. Pat thought for a moment. Oh, until New Year's? After the Fed people cut down that swath of trees along the border. Linwood said it so their drones could see anyone crossing. The number of hooligans went way down. Linwood started helping some of the secret people on the other side. I don't know how he got to know them. Yeah, but he did. They'd meet out there in the fallen trees and swap things. Uh, the feds must have found out about it. They started sending more drones and those little fire airplanes on our house. It was pretty scary at first, until Linwood built our fake house. She patted one of the posts. Then they started bombing this thing instead. Uh, they don't actually hit it too often, uh, but when they do, Linwood has hoses rigged up along the ridge so he can just turn the spigot and flood the roof with water. The napalm keeps burning, but a lot of it gets rinsed over the edge. Mr. Varney returned and tossed two mylar blankets at Charles's feet. I'd a meeting is set for four a.m. I'll be out here at three thirty with my equipment. You boys better be ready. It's your deal to screw up. He and Pat turned and walked back to the house. Pat gave a little wave over her shoulder. Well, well, what do you want? asked Charles. Yard or roof thingy? Uh, let's do the yard. I don't fancy being napalmed in my sleep. The evening air grew cool after the sun went down behind the trees. Martin nestled inside his sleeping bag, within his plastic tube tent. The mylar blanket was draped over the top of his tent. Here I am again, he muttered to himself, laying on the ground in Varney's backyard. What? whispered Charles from his tent. Oh, nothing. Uh, never mind. Yeah, we'd better get some sleep. Three o'clock comes pretty fast. He tried not to replay visuals of his first time that he had been on the ground there. Such reminiscences always seemed to devolve into remembering Susan's eyes. Martin was up early. Sleeping on the cold ground had him waking up at least every hour. At 2.30, it was simply time to get up and get going. He had his things packed, but kept the mylar draped over his shoulders. The house's screen door smacked shut. In the dim, bluish light, Martin could see Mr. Varney struggling down the steps with a clumsy load. Uh, can I help you with that? Martin asked. Ah, yeah, hold on. Mr. Varney set down a long wooden box with three long poles. He adjusted the poles under one arm and took a strap of one end of the long box with the other. Ah, you carry that end. We need to get this set up quickly. Ah, where's your friend? Martin kicked at Charles's tent as they passed. Uh, he's just about ready now, he said to the tent. Mr. Varney led through his own backwoods and out into the wide open expanse. Tree trunks lay in all directions, like the old childhood game of pickup sticks. 
He clearly knew where he was going, zigging and zagging around the fallen trees. Yeah, the feds cut down all these trees so that they could see the escapees and the black marketeers better. Ah, the crazy jumble of tree trunks was a bonus that I didn't think they planned on, cause it works pretty well for us to spot and stop the hoodlums that the feds try to send across our way. It's one darned obstacle course to get across, I tell ya. How far in do we go? Martin asked. Charles hurried up from behind, huffing under the load of a fifty-pound sack of corn over his shoulder. Ah, this little clearing up here, said Mr. Varney softly. Ah, you can set the box down. I'll take it from here. See that scrawny tree sticking up over there? Looks like a poodle tail. Yeah, that's the meeting site. Expect your man to pop up somewhere there. While Martin and Charles scanned the debris field of tree trunks, Mr. Varney set up his steel tube tripod that stood about eight feet tall at the peak. From the peak hung a length of chain, with a hollow square of steel linked to the bottom. Varney hefted his heavy object out of the long box. Cradled in the crook of both arms, it looked like a length of two-inch diameter aluminum tube with an irregular box of steel at one end. This he struggled to get clipped to the bottom of the steel square. "'What is that?' Martin asked in a whisper. "'Ah, that's my drone gun,' replied Varney, without looking up. "'You're supposed to be watching for your contact.' "'Hey!' called Charles. "'There he is, over there!' He pointed to a stout man with gray-white hair, standing behind a large tree trunk twenty yards away. "'Hello!' called the man. Uh, Mr. Corn? Ah, uh, Mr. Parts, called Charles. The older man sagged, visibly relieved. Yes, uh, I've got the parts right here. He hefted a cardboard box up onto the tree trunk. I want to come and check them out, said Charles. I'm coming over. Charles whispered over his shoulder. Ah, uh, follow me, but stay maybe ten feet back. Keep your carbine at the ready. As they got closer, the older man looked nervously from one to the other of them and back at the woods on the mass side of the border. Charles approached cautiously, with his hands clearly visible. The man reciprocated, keeping his hands visible, too. Charles studied the printing on the box and examined a few of the smaller packages within. "'Ah, looks like the right stuff,' said Charles. Well, "'I've got the corn over there. I'll bring it over, and we can—' "'No,' said the man trembling slightly. I don't want the corn. What? We were told that's what you wanted, blurted Charles. No, I want you to let us come across. Let us stay in New Hampshire. Us? Charles hunched down and drew his pistol. No, 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 it's not like that, said the man. It's my family. I want you to let my family escape to your side. Uh, Helen? Ava? Aiden? He called over his shoulder. Uh, please stand up slowly. One by one, three more people stood up in the midst of the fallen tree trunks. Ah, this isn't what we bargained for, protested Charles. Uh, they said a sack of corn. What's taking so long out there? shouted Varney. Who are those other people? We need to be getting out of here. I don't know what they told you, said the old man. They told us that you'd let us get across in exchange for these parts. Ah, but... Uh, we have to come across, pleaded the man. Uh, they'll kill us if they find us. We don't know anything about them, Martin said to Charles. It's not our call who they allow in the state or not. Yeah, replied Charles. It's not our call. 
The old man scooped up the box and clutched it to his chest. His voice quivered. That's, uh, um, that's the deal. Us, uh, for these parts. Uh, take it or, um, take it or leave it. Hurry up out there, shouted Varney. The next drone pass will be any minute now. Look, began Martin, it's not up to us who gets in. There's a whole other... Please, begged the man. You have to let us in. We have nowhere else to go. They'll be looking for us. Everybody down, shouted Varney. Drone coming in from the west. Everybody ducked down behind a tree trunk, but peeked over the top in the direction of the growing buzz. Down, I said, shouted Varney. All heads popped down, but apparently not in time. The drone slowed and circled over the group. It quickly zoomed east. Ah, that's it, called Varney. Ah, they seen you now. Deal's off. Get back over here before the bad ones get here. Sorry, said Charles. Yeah, we can't help you. He turned to go. Martin grabbed Charles by the arm. We can't have come all this way to return empty-handed. Take the deal. Get your parts. Uh, look, mister, uh, it's not up to us who they let in. Uh, we can let you cross the border, but it's not up to us whether you get to stay. Uh, that's okay, said the man. Uh, we'll take that chance. I told you, shouted Varney. Here they come. An unharmonized chord of buzzes arose in the east. Three dark dots appeared in the deep blue pre-dawn sky. Move it, people, shouted Varney. Bezons, shoot. Everyone clambered over the tree trunks and ran in zigzags around them. Charles grabbed the box away from the old man, who then grabbed the hand of the older woman as they ran. Behind them ran a young woman and a boy. Cracks rang out from the sky. Flashes erupted from the dark dots. Zips and hisses whooshed overhead. Sprays of bark flew up, hitting Martin in the face. The boy tripped. His mother stopped to help him up. A roar of flames flashed out of Varney's drone gun. He had it trained like an anti-aircraft gun aboard a destroyer. He racked a long lever and let loose another boom. The nearest dark dot made a tight circle, then dropped to the ground. Martin stopped gawking and resumed running. More distant cracks rang out from the sky. Zips sent tufts of soil up to his right, so he zagged left. Varney pivoted, swinging his big gun toward the second armed drone. He squinted over the rear post sight and pressed the trigger. The big gun belched flames and jerked back at the end of its chain. The second drone broke into a half a dozen pieces and fell. Woohoo! shouted Varney. Ah, take that, ya commies! Keep running, people! Ah, there's a deep trench beside the rabbit shed. Yeah, get in it. Martin saw the four newcomers and Charles drop down into the trench. He was close enough that he could jump into the trench in a moment, so he opted to look back. The third drone traced a wide arc to the east. Varney fired twice, but missed. The drone moved back over the woods on the far side of the cleared zone. Ah, dang it, muttered Varney. They know my range, and they're hanging out there until more of them can vector in. Out of your range, muttered Martin, but maybe not out of mine. He knelt behind a fallen maple trunk and rested the forestock of his carbine on the tree. His sights were just visible in the blue twilight. The drone stopped circling and hovered. He estimated that the drone was about a hundred yards away. He seldom had the opportunity to shoot at a hundred yards around his property. The landscape was far too wooded to permit much more than forty yards. 
but he had practiced some long shots at cans out on the road. He had to move the target about halfway down his front sight. He held his breath and released it slowly as he squoozed the trigger right up to the breaking point. <laughs> his muzzle flash temporarily blinded him. He could see nothing in the deep blue sky. Woohoo! Hey, you got him! shouted Varney. Winged him anyhow. He's struggling, uh, but he's going down. Quick, get over here and help me break down this big rig before more of them come. Martin rushed over to Varney's tripod. He had the gun unhooked from the steel yoke. The two of them settled the big gun into its wooden box. Varney collapsed the tripod in one broad sweep of his arm. The two of them carried the long box back to the trench and climbed down. Yeah, help me pull us cover over, said Varney. The men tugged at three pieces of plywood that felt far too heavy for just plywood. Varney explained how they had several layers of sheet metal and matting for both bullet mitigation and as an IR barrier. Ah, Pat, dear, Varney said into a walkie-talkie. Ah, we in the hole. Be here for a while, I suspect. You know what to do. What the heck kind of gun is that? asked Charles. That was amazing. Ah, me and my little drone papa. Yeah, we done pretty well, he patted the box. Eight gauge. Ah, but those have been illegal since. Ah, that's for hunting, interrupted Varney. This one here's an industrial gun. Ah, used for cleaning kilns and furnaces. A prime bit of salvage, it was. Got me several thousand rounds for it, too. The guy said the factory would go through a thousand rounds a day, cleaning their kiln. So they had plenty. Oh, will the drones be back? asked the older man. Ah, sure, said Varney. I expect the next wave to come any time now. They'll sweep back and forth quickly, looking for us. Probably won't get too close, though. We cost them three expensive toys today. Varney chuckled and rubbed his hands together in glee. I can't thank you enough for, for helping us cross, said the older man. Uh, my name's Harold. Uh, this is my wife, Helen. Uh, daughter Ava, and my grandson Aiden. Ah, look, Harold, said Varney. Ah, you're not in the clear yet. Authorities gotta vet you, run checks and find out if anyone will sponsor you. Best case is you'll stay in detention for a couple of months before they let you go to live with your sponsor. Worst case, eh, well, they ship you back. Oh, we can't go back, whispered Helen. Oh, not anymore. Oh, we'll take our chances here. Harold patted his wife's hand. Ava pulled her son close. A pair of drones buzzed back and forth over the drop site. They lingered for several minutes before drifting away. Ah, looks like they're giving up, announced Varney. Ah, let's get back up to the house quick-lack. They all climbed out and hurried to hide under the fake house roof. Varney took his drone gun gear back up to the house. Charles smiled at his cardboard box of parts. Harold's family stood in a little knot, arms around each other. When Varney returned, he announced that he had radioed ahead to the nearest detention site. They would be expecting Harold's family soon. Martin and Charles were assigned as transport, as Varney couldn't leave his post. He fully expected a retaliatory attack that evening, but spoke of it with an eager anticipation. Helen and Ava sat in the cab of the truck, with Charles driving. Martin worked the gasifier to get it up to temperature. Harold sat with his back to the cab. 
Aidan sat, wide-eyed, in the other corner of the flatbed, arms around his drawn-up knees. Martin patted the roof of the cab. Ah, try it now. The starter motor whined a long time. Nothing. After a pause, Charles tried again. The engine sputtered to life, skipping and missing for a full minute before a smooth idle set in. Martin sat with his back to the cab. Uh, so, Harold, what was so bad that you risked getting killed to get here? They were going to kill us in a day or so. Yeah, we had to take a chance. Kill you for what? What did you do? Harold let out a derisive snort. <laughs> for casting them a part that failed. Martin looked puzzled, so Harold continued. That's a long story. Yeah, probably take ten chapters to tell it all. Uh, the short version is uh, one of their wind turbines down in Boston broke a blade base during that big winter storm. They rounded up a few people with foundry experience and ordered some of us to cast them a new one. I tried to tell them my experience was with iron and steel. I used to cast steel parts, not aluminum, uh, but they wouldn't listen. We cast an aluminum part like they told us. It looked good, yeah, but I could see it had a bunch of micro-cracks. As soon as that blade base came under any stress, it was going to fail, too. Well, but that's not your fault, said Martin. Why would they kill you for that? Harold shook his head. Yeah, that's just how the committee operates. Yeah, they don't tolerate failure. A team before mine tried to cast the same base, and their part failed. They were charged with wanton waste of the people's resources, sabotage of a duly authorized committee project and uh, some other terrible-sounding charges. That team disappeared. Rumor had it they took them out in the bay and shot them. I knew that we were next. It was only a matter of days. Okay, but how did you happen to have just the box of parts we needed and get to the border? Oh, uh, well, that wasn't us, said Harold. That was the Purdue. The what? I can't tell you much about them. They're some sort of underground resistance network operating in the cantons. That's a long story, but I learned how to spot them. I spotted one of them assigned to be part of our casting team. I pled with him for help because I knew we had only a few days left to live. Once that base failed, we'd all be hauled out into the bay and shot too. The Purdue heard about your call for those parts. They didn't have to help us, yeah, but they did. I don't know why. Anyhow, they found the parts. I didn't. They snuck us up to the woods at the border. From there, yeah, we were on our own. Uh, but? That's all I can tell you, said Harold, shaking his head. I don't know how they did what they did. Probably best I didn't know. Martin could feel the truck slowing down. Peering over the cab, he saw a sign for a riding school. A man opened a chain-link gate. A new-looking eight-foot chain-link fence, topped with barbed wire, wrapped around the property. The man directed them to a long white building. From the many doors and single shuttered windows, it was clearly a stables. Two men, one with a rifle, the other with a clipboard, directed Harold and his family toward an open horse-stall door. Oh, thank you for saving our lives, said Harold. Well, I don't know if you should thank us, said Martin. We were just running for our lives like everyone else. Well, we've got to go. I hope your story checks out and they get you resettled, said Martin. 
Uh, even this, Harold glanced around at the stables, is far better than a trip out to the bay. This chapter was an opportunity for me to give you, the listeners, a broader view of what's going on in the bigger picture. Based on the first couple of chapters of Book 6, you could get the impression that life had settled down in New Hampshire. Indeed, the people are doing what they can to rebuild normal lives. But the siege is still in place. While that might not be as apparent farther north from the border, a little taste of life on the border seemed like a good reminder. The Herald character also provides a glimpse of life in the cantons, Canton Boston specifically, where the people of New Hampshire have begun to rebuild their lives. The lives of the people living under the stern benevolence of the bureaucrats is still very harsh. In podcast news, I'd like to give a shout-out to the mysterious someone and to JK21, the newest members of the Siege Club at Buy Me a Coffee. Thanks, you two. I do appreciate your support for this ongoing work and the writing of the Siege Stories. If you'd like to show your support for these podcasts, head on over to my Buy Me a Coffee page or my Patreon page. The links are in the show notes. You, too, can join the ranks of the cool kids. Next week, I celebrate the start of maple sap season with a little early spring slash late winter walk around here at the homestead. I'll talk to you then.